0: So I'm gonna to talk to you tonight about um, using samadhi or concentration to develop or support wisdom through insight meditation. And this is some of the shift that we're, um, we're offering. And it's not a shift you have to take if you've been enjoying the concentration practice and you really wanna stay with it, um, that's beautiful. There's a lot to be developed as you've already seen but we're offering a, a sense of how um, concentration in samadhi uh, support other factors of the path and sort of play a role on the, the whole path of awakening. So that's what we're gonna be teaching. But again, if you find that um, you're really enjoying the simplicity of staying with the breath and want to spend your time doing that, um, that's a very beautiful endeavor. So you can use this sort of peripheral information if it's not important to you. Otherwise, just to see how the practice we have been doing, which uh, often can feel distinct from the other retreats that happen here, the mindfulness, vipassana retreats, this is really uh, mindfulness, uh, samatha techniques to develop samadhi. And then the other retreats tend to be uh, geared a little bit more towards mindfulness and vipassana. As Andrea said last night, um, the the liberation from all this turmoil in the mind comes through the vipassana, that's how it's held in this tradition, that the samadhi that you've been developing uh, gives you a temporary relief. So it's beautiful to get that temporary relief. It's very orienting to have a mind that's not caught up in agitation. Um, And so these little windows open up and you can see this is what the mind is like when it's not haggard or restless or agitated, um, when it's peaceful, when it's content. But in our tradition, it's seen that uh, um, samadhi alone cannot actually uproot the underlying tendencies to get caught up in um, dissatisfaction, in agitation, in internal strife. So samadhi in our tradition is held as a support for uh, deepening wisdom and insight. And I'd just like to give you a a parallel um, of what it's like to change a paradigm. So we've been in one paradigm where things we're hoping are permanent, where you live in an ever-changing universe, but we're hoping that we can arrange our way so that we can find some type of relief, some type of security and so there's this underlying urge we have for things being permanent, reliable, that we can draw satisfaction from our ever-changing experiences and that we can finally get a hold of this self. We can finally get a hold of who we are and find um, finally the, the the self that we can take refuge in. I can finally work myself out. Then I get to be the better temple and I get to kind of feel relief of that and that other half of me will dissipate. So there's this urge to, um, to have a self uh, that is more at peace. And the change in paradigm, the parallel I like to, um, to describe, just using one from the world of science. Um, when I was much younger, I was a physicist And it's wonderful to be in the realm of the sciences because you can see how often people were trying to understand their world and then somebody would have an insight and would totally shift the way people were understanding the physical world and how it worked. So one big shift in paradigm was going from the common everyday sense that the earth is firm and large and the planets and the sun, the moon are small and they go around us. So if you kind of walk around the earth, you see the sun moving, you see the moon moving, the stars seem to move. The common sense would be that we're stable and those things move. And one of the problems is that you can't actually, you can't predict how they're going to move. If you have that underlying view that we're stable and they move, they move in patterns that you cannot predict. You can't figure out where they're going to be. The sun a little bit, the moon a little bit, but the planets seem to move in the most uh, um, wild um, pathways. And at the time, in the 1500s, it was believed, probably, I mean, by a lot of people today too, actually, that the movement of the planets had a big impact over world events, personal world events or Know, national world events, global world events, but they were unpredictable. And no one could have guessed, really, from common sense, that the underlying paradigm was not, uh, was not accurate because your common sense was just constantly reinforcing, we're big and stable, they move. And what happened in the, <clears throat> in the 1500s was, um, Galileo developed the first telescope. So he took uh, the, the development of lenses, the development of glass, arranged it in the right way, and began looking at Venus and looking at the moon. And because he had profound and direct and obvious data of the reality of the moon, the reality of Venus, the old paradigm couldn't stand. The old paradigm had to fall. And it fell slowly. <laughs> if you know his story, it wasn't accepted well. One of The church's <laughs> big mistakes. <laughs> they bet on the wrong horse um, because they liked their worldview. And their worldview, they wanted to be loyal to it. And so posturing another view was dangerous to that underlying view. But when you start to actually look at the planets through a telescope, it's undeniable. Um, how they move, how they point towards the sun, that they go through phases. Uh, And so that put us going around the sun. But you had to look very carefully at that system through something like a telescope to override common sense and have a profound insight. That would change that paradigm. The nice thing about changing the paradigm, we lost being the center of the universe. (laughs) So that was the downside. Um, but the upside was that planetary motion made a lot more sense. You could actually then see how things worked out. And it's the nice thing about aligning with reality is that it doesn't betray you. Reality does what reality does. You get betrayed when you're preferring one thing and reality does another. So at wisdom, as I understand it, is the ability to align with reality, to align with this is how things actually are. So then you don't get confused. I mean, reality is kind of complex. Um, Some of you might even be struggling with the word reality on on many levels. (laughs) Um, But when you can come more in align with the way things actually are and live according with that, then one, it's not confusing. And two, you can actually um, relate to the way things are, to kind of gain happiness, to gain contentment. And so that same paradigm is happening for us. We have a, a common sense of how things are, but we get frustrated by the way things are. And so we need to come in and be very intimate with certain parts of our experience to turn the paradigm around. And the paradigm that we're turning around is that we see things as being permanent and we take refuge in them, even though they're not permanent. So this building was built well, but it's definitely not permanent. It's temporary. This building is a temporary construction. This body we have, I've had it all my life, (laughs) feels pretty permanent, but if I look closely, it's not so permanent. It's actually going through a process, and I'm wise enough to see this is an aging process, and I'm wise enough to know that um, there is an aging process to human bodies. So if I, don't, if I come into alignment with it, that's what bodies do. They go through an aging process. That's what buildings do. They go through an aging process. That's what anything that uh, is constructed will go through an aging process and eventually fall apart. So this is one of the laws that the Buddha... Um, described. It's a law like gravity. It's a law like electromagnetism. It's just a law that things that are born eventually fall apart. That was one of his great insights. And so we hope, you know, we have this urge. It's an understandable urge that you could actually have something start and then last as long as you wanted it to and not age. But that's just not the way things are so if you're comfortable with that, you don't get frustrated when reality does what it's always done, but it goes against your preferences. I lived in San Francisco for a while, <clears throat> and my car shows it <laughs> in that um, it got beat up in San Francisco. It got beat up a lot. It got keyed. The person walked by and scratched it. It got dinged. Um, the bumper has hundreds and hundreds of dents from all the incredibly tight parallel parking that people do and that I've done myself where you have to go back and forth 15 times and you definitely have to <laughs> you're definitely doing bumper cars with a few people and you know, saying your forgiveness is <laughs> and you have to figure other people doing the same thing because sometimes that's the only way you're going to get to your house at night is that 15 point turn into a very tight spot on a hill so <clears throat> my car reflects reality and my preferences don't <laughs> I, I, I can still remember the new car. I can still remember the car without the scratches. I still remember the car without the ding uh, in the window. I still remember um, the car that, you know, drove smoothly and I can see it aging. There, of course there's a part of me that's wise enough to console myself, but I have to be consoled. I have to be consoled because it's definitely, my car is going through an aging process. But that's what cars do and it's what they've always done. So my car is not unique, but there's sort of this um, uh, loving of things to be how we like them. But in that, very rarely do we like the aging process. I had a friend who, um, whose husband was a contractor and they built this house. And the first thing she did to the new floors that he put in is she hired somebody to take chains and beat up the floor, (laughs) because they had young kids. And he's a contractor, he's put in a beautiful floor, and he was aghast that she would want this, but she said, if we beat them up before we move in, we will never be disappointed when they age. (laughs) And so that's incredible insight, if you're gonna have young kids. um, You might walk into your house and do your own finger painting on the wall, (laughs) and dinging up the floor, and then when they do it, you, know, you can coach them like, you know, let's do this as least as possible, but they're gonna ding up your house and the houses get dinged up. That's just the way it is. So if you know that, then as the kids ding up the house, it's sort of like, hey, look, reality. <laughs> and it's not upsetting, but if you were somehow hoping that wouldn't happen and then it does, you have to go through an adjustment period. So things change and the changing process is an aging one. And that's uh, that's just how things that are born, they go through this process. If something has a beginning, which is pretty much almost everything we ever encounter has a beginning. The universe seems to have a beginning, so that's pretty much everything, except for this one thing, uh, Nibbana, and I'm not gonna go into that in this talk, that's the one thing that doesn't seem to have a beginning, therefore it doesn't go through an aging process, so. That's for another talk. But most of what we are encountering is a world that's going through change, and the change um, goes through an aging process. And if we can come to terms with that, then even if it's unpleasant, that aging process, we don't have to suffer over it. We don't have to be caught and frustrated by this underlying thing. Like We don't get frustrated by gravity. We just learn to live in accord with it If you walk and you trip and you fall, you know, damn you, gravity, (laughs) look what you did one more time, I'm going to get you, or if it wasn't gravity, you would trip and just float out. That's even worse. (laughs) So, you know, given the options, you know, take a skin knee versus disappearing into infinite space. (laughs) So that's a, a way things are. We live in accordance with it. We we put up with it and after all we don't even think we're putting up with it. It's just, yeah, gravity. Yeah. Things that are born age. And the aging process, as far as we say, leads to a final dissolution. Now we have to come to terms with that. We have to come to terms with that. And that's what sort of maturing is. Maturing in the face of this. That underlying factor and our inability to work with it uh, sets us up for a lot of frustration. And that frustration that we feel, that stress that we feel around the changing nature of experience, we call it suffering is the English word, one of them, though there are others, but the, the Pali word is dukkha. We feel this uh, stress and strain and the fact that we're living in a world that's out of our control, it's going through changes, the changing process is an aging one, And that usually leads to a falling apart at some point. So that's one of the ways that we suffer. The changing nature of experience is also, it's everything, which includes us. Okay, so I can say my body is aging, but I'm also changing moment by moment. And this is what, it actually takes, I don't know how else you have these insights at the level where they really transform your perspective without mindfulness and insight, to actually come into your experience and see, wherever I look, look all I see is a changing process. If I really and intimate, if I have that good Galilean telescope, wherever I point it, I see an ever-changing process. I'm fairly similar to who I, who I was yesterday, but I'm not the same. My body's not the same, my mind's not the same, my thoughts aren't the same, heart's not the same, emotional patterns aren't the same, Similar, but not the same. So I'm going through this changing process, every level of me. But if I don't look closely, in common experience, I kind of feel like I'm the same guy I was yesterday. You're kind of the same people you were yesterday. And that sort of sloppy take on things works, and so we get away with it. I once did a... um, uh, 12-day silent meditation retreat with my father. And <clears throat> it, it was his first retreat and I was very excited but kind of terrified too. <laughs> and he sat next to me and then about four days in when my mind began to relax and open up, it suddenly occurred to me that everything I knew about him I was 20 at the time um, was an interpretation. And that actually there was so much to him I didn't know and if there's anybody I should know, it's one of my parents. I mean, that's the sort of longest relationship. But I realized there was so little I knew about him. And I had this flash in that paradigm shift that th- I was sitting next to a complete stranger. It's <laughs> was like, there's so much, I, there's, what I know about him is so little compared to what I don't know about him. It's hardly different than someone I've just met. It was a very kind of deep insight, probably disproportionate, I mean, probably not like totally true but in the moment it kind of went through me and i felt in that moment i lost the father i knew because there was so much more there i didn't know i felt like i just what what i would call dad was actually the little tip of my finger and there's this whole other realm but what that did after the retreat was it meant i could then get to know this person in ways i'd never asked before because I'd gotten comfortable with him. My map of him was good enough. And so comfort came and I did stopped asking questions about him, I stopped asking who he was. So after the retreat with this insight, I got to learn a lot more about him and know I'll never know him. And that's actually kind of exciting. It means that for the time we have together, there are whole realms of him, whole, he's a mansion and there are whole wings of him. I've never really gotten to know. So it's fun actually when I go visit him to to try to imagine something I haven't figured out about him. I know it's true, and then I try a line of questions. It's like, who was the second person you ever kissed? And how did that play out? And what did that do to your worldview? And he's like, oh, okay, second person. Uh, (laughs) And I was like, yeah. I am just trying to, like, how could we get at you? Um, But they're so... uh, there's so little that we um, we can know, even though we feel comfortable, we feel comfortable with our smaller view of how things are. So again, we have our common everyday experience. We kind of settle for that understanding. But then, because it's not the full understanding and it doesn't actually map onto reality, we get frustrated from seeing the world that way. That's true on many levels and what the Buddha was pointing out luckily is you don't have to do that on everything but there's a few trends that are really worth looking at. And one of them is this underlying trend to assume that just because this bell or this body or this room is enough like it was yesterday, I can get a little sloppy, relax and say yeah, I'm not expecting this to change and therefore I don't have to think about it. I don't have to live in a dynamic universe. I get to live in one that feels static the problem is I always then get kind of thrown when reality does what it does and things age. And then there's a gap between the comfort I was having in relying upon things being how I wanted them to be stable. And then they change. And I see the change is in an aging process. And then I do the math and I realize that there's a dissolution process. And then I go to lose something I was finding comfort in So that's sort of like uh, an underlying trend that we have to develop wisdom on, wisdom in. We have to be able to uh, come into alignment with the fact that things change and the changing is an aging process. An aging process uh, leads towards dissolution. So, We can develop a lot of this wisdom, as I was saying earlier. As we go into developing samadhi, one big thing is that we're able to go through a very radical letting go process. So the more we let go and find that the breath is, how you know, we can be very content with the breath. That helps us soften our underlying clutching, clinging to the world the way we want it if I'm actually with my breath, in that moment, I've allowed the whole world to be just as it is. And if I find contentment with the breath, then I've reduced what I need to be content to one breath at a time, which means I've solved the relationships momentarily to just about everything else. Does that make sense? At least for a moment, I can let go. And if I can let go for a moment, then I don't have this sort of uh, iron grip that the world has to be a certain way. It softens that. So that wisdom of letting go gets developed as we develop samadhi. We begin to turn to seeing that uh, rather than being dependent on my, my happiness, being dependent upon things or uh, security and safety or possessions or happiness coming from certain experiences and therefore being kind of limited and precarious, I can see that actually I can be fully content with things just as they are. Again, in those moments that I'm with my breath, fully connected, I'm developing this wisdom that knows that happiness isn't dependent upon my possessions. Happiness isn't dependent upon controlling the world, having the world be a certain way. Again, these are uh, moments that open up. They don't solve the overall equation, they begin to give you firsthand experience at letting go deeply and a firsthand experience that the happiness and contentment that's possible actually can arise from within. And that begins to kind of shift your paradigm. When I was heading over to Burma, I thought I might be going for life. I wasn't sure, but I was open to it. And I went to a party for a friend who was also going over to Burma with me one of her friends says, like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get what you guys are doing. Why would you go live in a monastery? And she would never done meditation practice, so it was hard to tell her that. And she said, aren't you going to miss the world? And I said, uh, probably, but I've already tasted more happiness on a meditation retreat than I've ever found in daily life, and I think that that one actually can increase. And I'm I'm not so sure about worldly happiness. So if it's, if it's happiness, I am I'm going to step out onto this path and I'm going to follow this intuition that the greater happiness will actually come through this practice versus um, trying to secure my happiness through um, the right partner, the right job, the right house, the right lifestyle. Um, so that was a risk at the time, but I took that risk because I had tasted really through samadhi, but also through, um, dawning wisdom, that there was another way to go about one's happiness and contentment. So again, just developing samadhi is a support for developing wisdom, and you need these wisdoms to support the samadhi, they, they support each other. But um, you can start to shift the underlying paradigm of security through objects, security through possessions, security and happiness through certain experiences to where your needs become very little. To have a deep sense of fulfillment when all you're doing is breathing sets the bar very low for what you need to be happy in life. You know, everything else is, is gravy on top of that because you're going to be breathing. And if you can actually work out that equation and my breathing check, oh, okay, phew, I got what I need to be happy. Now, what else we got? What do you want, what do you want to add to that? <clears throat> And if you check and you're not breathing, and that's where you put all your eggs, it's, you know, <laughs> that can be troubling, but not for very long. <laughs> Through samadhi, the development of samadhi, you, you learn that, um, that you can actually have a shift in your mind. And uh, there are so many people I know who they feel like this is just who I am i 'm just this way, and it 's like okay, so <laughs> there 's no option like you 're going to be this way. this part of you is carved in granite, and I have certain people um because i'm i'm i 'm more open to the fact that things can shift and there's there 's hope in that my family members get and it's like don 't apply that to me <laughs> <laughs> Think, you know, I am this way, I will be this way forever, so let 's just end this conversation and they're and I think that they actually would hope that they could change, but they don't, they don't believe they have tools for it. They don't believe that the patterns that they have, so the world and them are just gonna have to settle with a certain amount of misery, or certain like, yeah, I've got a raging anger problem, or yeah, every winter I get incredibly depressed, or I've never been good at this, I've never been good at this. this is like a locked in, concretized sense of their self. And there's no, they don't have a sense that there's transformation that's possible. But through this practice, you can see for yourself, it's not easy, it can be difficult. But uh, one by one, I've been surprised at things, even last year, that felt like, man, maybe this part of me, it's, it's probably gonna be there, it's probably a facet of who I am, and then seeing it gives ground. And all of a sudden, I'm living a life without that personal attribute. So i been able to change everything I want, but I've been surprised at the things that's, that can change, even 25 years in, to doing dedicated work, there's still beautiful transformation happening. So that supports this wisdom, that supports the faith that you can actually shift this paradigm, that there's hope, that uh, putting in your time, uh, you can actually cultivate an ever-increasing happy, content, peaceful, restful mind, one where there's humor, there's lightness, there's compassion, there's empathy, and that you can actually gain ground in that direction. You begin to see through even this development of samadhi that um, the craving and clinging, the old habits of it, um, really backfire. And so if you've started to open up at all into a sense of being satisfied with simple breathing and feeling that type of contentment, then the crude craving for something else, some other type of happiness, comparatively, you begin to see through that strategy that that strategy doesn't land anywhere secure. Anything you can achieve through sort of a desperate clinging or obsession about it um, won't deliver the type of deep well being that um, intimacy but open handed relationship to experience can give you. And that's a whole transformation. That's a whole transformation into the paradigm of not clinging and grasping to a world that is constantly in change. So this is the wisdom that comes even just by developing samadhi. And then there are, um, there are changes in this paradigm, shifting yourself into this relationship in terms of uh, aligning with the way things are. That happens more through the insight practice. And so that's sort of why we're making a shift so you can actually see in your own hearts and minds and bodies the the beauty and benefit of developing samadhi, but then how samadhi can support insight practice. So as uh, Andrea said yesterday, the the opening up of insight practice begins with aligning with anicca, that's the Pali word which gets translated off as impermanence. So the impermanent nature of experience, the fact that everything that we experience, almost everything we experience, is a constructed experience, is a constructed uh, entity, So this clock, the light, the building, my body, your body, um, the fact that we're here on retreat, this is, we all work to make this happen. We all constructed this. Um, So aligning with that and seeing that, not just understanding it intellectually, but feeling it experientially, and then deepening that so it becomes your operating view. You don't have to force the view You just come into intimacy with the way things are and the view stands out. Galileo didn't force the sun to go around the earth. He just became more intimate with the way things are through the telescope. And then reality kind of just uh, unfolded. And we haven't had to do another big paradigm shift except around Pluto (laughs) in terms of the planets. uh, Sent him, we pretty much were comfortable with uh, sun being the center of our solar system. So more intimacy have actually just shown more of that understanding. So we come into greater intimacy. Um, The feeling for me of mindfulness combined with samadhi is deepening intimacy, sort of stabilizing intimacy with my firsthand experience. And so I can use mindfulness, which is kind of intimacy, just showing you what's happening right in the moment, combined with a little more tranquility, a little more steadiness, and then I can actually uh, see clearly what's happening moment by moment. Too much restlessness and agitation, it's hard to get good feedback from what's happening because it's so chaotic, because the mind is so restless. And so bringing a little more tranquility, a little more calm, combining that with the intimacy of mindfulness then you can uh, sink down into your body, into your mind, into your heart, anywhere you want in your world with this deeper intimacy. And what you discover is that things are going through this changing process. The the Pali word for insight in insight meditation is vipassana. And the vi, the V um, it's the type of, and pasana means seeing. So you're seeing and the vi means it's a discerning. You're kind of um, seeing something a little more clearly and you're really drawing out the characteristics of what you see. So you're not blurring two things together. Things are not kind of fuzzy. They come into uh, clear relief when you have insight. So that moment of like, aha, you can see something clearly. So that's what the V, the VI is And There are other polywords that have this VI in it, but it's it's a, a clarity, a discerning, and usually a separating of two things that were confusingly put together. And you can see the distinctions of a particular aspect. So vipassana, when practiced on the breath, is different than the samatha practices we've been doing. Samatha practices are for steadying the mind, for collecting the mind, cultivating joy, cultivating tranquility. So that's the samatha practices. They tend to make a string of homogeneous experiences. So as you deepen and deepen in uh, samatha practices, as that type of samadhi deepens, the experience gets so steady that it feels like a string of very similar experiences and you can have um, uh, just a flow for hours at a time for some people of a very, very similar experience. It's peaceful, it's restful, you're just looking in one view, there's not a lot of creative thoughts, those start to even settle down, and you're just having the breath, you're just flowing along with breathing sensations, for example there comes a point where that type of experience is actually difficult to then see Nietzsche because the experience you're having is so similar that the anicca within it begins to become hard to discriminate. And so we practice samatha techniques like we've been doing for samadhi that creates a very even type of experience. And at some point, it's it, it's hard to do vipassana on that because the stream experiences are so similar. The mind is so tranquil that one moment feels exactly like the next moment and it feels exactly like the next moment. It's, it's a good thing to do for the mind. It's a good thing to do for the heart and the body. It's very restful, it's very transformative. But this deeper liberating wisdom that comes from intimacy with anicca, intimacy with impermanence, doesn't ripen that one Aspect doesn't ripen with deeper and deeper and deeper samadhi. It actually gets a little bit obscured in that experience because everything becomes so tranquil and so easy and so kind of similar that um, it's hard to again ripen the experience with uh, insight practice. Is that making sense? I see you if enough heads nod. Then when you <laughs> when you guys talk, you can swap notes. Um, So beautiful factors of mind and heart get developed with samadhi. There comes a point where things are, uh, it's it's too chaotic and it becomes less chaotic and then it calms down and you're developing intimacy and then you pass through a moment where you can see how the mind's working, you can watch thoughts arise and pass, there's enough sort of background tranquility that anything that is agitating, is like, oh, I'm pre- I'm doing pretty well, but yeah, there's this one little buzzy thing. What is it? Oh, I'm I'm holding some old regret about something I said, or yeah, there's some resentment I have for so and so, or I'm I'm mostly with my breath, with my breath, but I'm kind of hoping there's another cookie thing happening. <laughs> it only happened once on the retreat. And once we're going, <laughs> wonder if they going to do it again? <clears throat> and you get to feel the little agitation. So that's, you can still kind of learn how the mind works in that. But then the mind can become so quiet, which is, has benefits, but it becomes so quiet that it's actually hard to then mature a deeper intimacy with how the mind works or um, with uh, this underlying quality of anicca. So what happens then, if you actually are getting, we call those uh, absorbed states where things become so even, um, and there's a, the mind rests the body rests, you become sort of fulfilled at peace, then you take your attention and you put it in some place where there's a little bit more obvious dynamic play happening. And so uh, you can come into the breath, for example, The breath is constantly changing. And rather than using the breath to calm your mind and open up this beautiful sense of well-being, you're resting your attention on the breath, and then you just, just slightly tilt the perspective and ask another question. Right there where you're with the breath, the same breath that's been giving you the sense of ease, and you say, is any moment here actually lasting? Is any moment, it feels similar, but is, this moment arising fresh moment by moment, or is it actually the same? And so just that little change of question, you be then you then can then use that same intimacy where you begin to see, oh, this breath that I was resting on and finding very peaceful, very reliable, yeah, actually, there's a new breath arising in every moment. And it's like, okay, if so it's arising every moment, is it also disappearing shortly after that? And you look and it's like, yeah, actually, they're not stacking up. It's not, they don't just arrive and fill the room. <laughs> they arrive and then they're gone. So there's room for the next one. It's like, okay, well, let's let's be intimate with our experience, right, with the breath, or even just in the body, just putting your attention to your hands anywhere in the body, and you become intimate with your body. You use that t- same type of samadhi, resting the mind, very peaceful, and then you look at experience disappearing. And it's just that you don't have to do any big retooling of the whole factory and do some other big thing. You just tilt the perspective from one of peacefulness and joy from breathing or feeling your body. And just like, I'm just gonna be intimate with the fact that things are passing. It takes a little attunement, but you then attune, it's like, yeah, everything's passing. Breath is passing, body sensation of passing that thought just came through and it passed. It's like, yeah, everything's passing, 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 passing. And then you're in the realm where you are starting to see impermanence. In the exact same place that you were developing samadhi, you're now using that same arena, that same exact place. You tilt the question and you start seeing that experiences are disappearing or new experiences are arising. The interesting thing that that does is that it's the underlying stability and sameness that um, deepens the samadhi from samatha practices, from these tranquility practices. Once you start seeing things arising and passing, the mind begins to feel a little bumpy because you're now in a very vibrating experience rather than one that was calm and tranquil you can feel this underlying vibration. And that vibration of experience begins to stir your mind up a little bit. And then you start drawing conclusions, like, oh, everywhere I put my mind is disappearing. Whoa, everything's disappearing. And that insight can kind of freak you out a little bit. (laughs) And that little, like, wow, that's kind of intense. That mind's no longer completely at peace because it's coming to terms with the passing nature of experience. If you start to get too addled by that, then you just tilt the mind back. You tilt it back and you say, okay, everything's disappearing, but I'm gonna trust that there's a steady breath, the steadiness of breath. It seemed to have been there long before I asked that second question. Let's go back to the first question. Am I breathing? And then you tilt the mind back and you find this very reliable breath, the uh, mind, takes ease in that. It's like, okay, okay. Everything was disappearing for a moment. That was kind of scary. But there seems to be this underlying reliability that my body breathes. Okay, then you kind of relax a little bit. Then you go in, ask again. Well, let's let's try that question out again. Is everything really disappearing moment by moment? You tilt into that and you deepen your faith and your capacity to be with experiences that are arising and passing, rising and passing and that, after a while, sometimes it's thrilling, so you can stay with it for a while, but sometimes it begins to, you intuit, like I'm in a world made of sand falling through time, like it's, there's so much change happening, it's bewildering. And so when it gets overwhelming, you can come back to the practices of samadhi. So this is, this is a very high art, this is a very high art to develop samadhi transition into the questions that show you this underlying rising and passing of experience, if that begins to be too uh, too overwhelming, then you can come back and rest again in the stability of experience. It's the same experience. It's like this, this bell is aging, but I can also put my hand on it and relax for a moment. This table is changing but it's also kind of reliable. So I can tilt back and forth between the two perspectives. This is, um, again, uh, a very beautiful and high art of going back and forth between the two. And it's just the tilting of the question. Are experiences actually lasting, or are they arising and passing? And you can mature your relationship to see, and then... Uh, deepen your faith and deepen your capacity to be longer and longer in this realm where things are arising and passing. And it's like looking through the telescope, you start to see, yeah, actually it's always been like this. Things have always been arising and passing. I just wasn't seeing things very clearly. Like when the paradigm shifted between the sun going around the earth and the earth going around the sun, it w- nothing actually changed just perspectives change. So things have always been arising and passing. Experiences have always been arising and passing, but you can, become, you can become very comfortable with it. It's a firsthand, direct, intimate experience. And the more you do that, the more you don't need to go back to the security of things not arising and passing. You then can kind of walk out on that bridge a little bit and be very intimate in the world where everything's arising and passing, rising and passing, rising and passing. And because that's an underlying truth to conditioned experience, then it's like you're resting on the right relationship to experience. You're resting on the truth, and you can't be betrayed by that. So as my car gets older, every scratch is like, there it is, reality, (laughs) proving itself, over and over and over again yeah, there's the rust, all right. <laughs> my car is not gonna like, throw me into a, comp- a competing paradigm, it's just showing me reality, it's just showing me the aging process, as is my body, as is my house, as is everything I've touched, my computer, my iPhone, my friends, everywhere I look, it's an aging process. It's an aging, ever-changing process, and I align with it. And there's this sort of like, you feel your feet on the ground, even though the ground is always changing, <laughs> you're resting on reality. And so then reality won't betray you. If reality doesn't betray you, it's your misunderstandings that betray you, that scare you, because I thought it was one way, but it wasn't. When you start to use this intimacy, you can then rest on the way things actually are. And then you begin to develop the wisdom and the capacity, it's like, yes, I'm in an aging body. I'm in an aging body. And that's difficult, that's challenging, especially as the aging process continues because you can kind of see where it's headed. Mm. (laughs) And so the nice thing is that that doesn't have to be a foregone bad conclusion, but you have to mature your relationship to that. You mature your relationship to it so that you're actually doing the dance of reality. You're doing the dance of the way things are as everybody else is. And all you're losing is a misunderstanding. You're not losing, you weren't actually gonna live forever. (laughs) You're here for a while. And if you can relax into that, then all this fear of the fact that things are changing and there's an aging process that haunts us, begins to loosen its grip. And you're actually resting in the way things are. I worked for uh, a year in a hospice ward Um, and I volunteered, actually. And that year had a big impact on me. And as much as I knew this truth, it still hadn't, hadn't saturated through me that there was a dying process, living in this culture, being affluent enough. I didn't have to see people dying, and so I knew it as an abstract fact. But in working in the hospice shelter, I got to mature my relationship to it, and then be in service, and then sing in the hospice ward with people that wanted to be sung with, sung to, or with, while they went through a very natural process. And it was painful, it was scary, but they had company, and they could have company because I wasn't afraid of a natural process. But I didn't walk in like that. That took time. That took time and intimacy to allow what I knew was true to settle in and there was a point where working on the hospice ward. I then would leave the hospice ward and feel like it's all hospice. <laughs> Every everything's hospice. I mean, you pretty much, you know, newborns grow and there's this graining of height and strength and capacity and then there's a leveling off and then, you know, it's hospice after that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, a game changer and that kind of I get through my paradigm, being young enough, but then it settled and then it was beautiful to be, it's like, yeah, here we are, we're all doing the same dance and nobody gets out, but getting out is like a desperate desire to not have the truth be the truth. And the more I actually settle into the truth, the more I'm at peace with it. When the Buddha left home He was actually trying to find the way out of the dying process. He was trying to find a way out of being born over and over again and experiencing all the trials and tribulations that come with life. And in one sense he did. In one sense, uh, as the story goes, he wasn't born again. But he found a peace well before he was free from the aging process because he finally was at peace with the aging process because he was at peace with the aging process, the changing process, the aging process, and the dissolution process, because he was thoroughly at peace with it, for 40 years before he actually died, he was completely in a tune with this underlying process. And it's what he guided people to be in tune with, this underlying process. If you practice vipassana without, practicing samadhi you go from daily life right into these truths so you go very quickly into a process that has you letting go and like i said with the the baby with the car keys you just end up taking the car keys out <laughs> and waiting for the baby to grow up <laughs> and that's you know there's that's, a, that's a, it can be a difficult maturing process to do uh uh, straight vipassana. And one of the benefits of doing samadhi practice is that there's a time of maturing your relationship to change, a time of letting go, a time of letting go of your happiness coming from the outside, knowing how to cultivate inside, knowing how to transform inside, and then turning that mind uh, slowly, as much as you want, into the realm of vipassana becoming comfortable with the ever changing nature of experience and then when you get overwhelmed you don't have to run out to ben and jerry's <laughs> to try to like pull your world back together <laughs> you can come back to samadhi you can come back into a sense of well-being here and now that's reliable enough it's not a it's not a perfect refuge you can't always access it but it's one that you can gain more and more access to over time A mind that can rest in samadhi for some period of time knows a type of well-being where you're not tired, you're not haggard, you're not restless, you're not resentful, you're not wishing you are elsewhere. So you're well rested to then take another step in a new direction and begin experiencing the intimacy of things arising arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. And when that begins to transform your paradigm too fast and you get disoriented, you can then settle back and just find the breath a beautiful place to rest. This process is so uh, so intimately combined that often when we do Vipassana uh, retreats, people are already combining this and it's difficult to, to tease it apart and show them how these things go back and forth. And so the very same time that they're becoming intimate with their breath, because the breath is a changing object to be intimate with, people are maturing their relationship to anicca, arising and passing, while they're also finding uh, a place to call home in the middle of all the chaos of their thoughts and emotions. And so as we teach normal insider mindfulness, vipassana retreats it goes by many names, not so many, but not several names, As we're maturing people in that, they're already getting the benefit of how these two things combine. The beauty of doing this retreat is you can see, as many of you have done insight practices before, there's a whole realm of wisdom, a whole realm of self-relationship that can flourish through samatha techniques rather than vipassana techniques, where you're learning to stabilize the mind, learning to heal the mind, learning to find satisfaction within, feel tranquility, there's a beautiful development that happens in that. <clears throat> and that process can continue and it can combine with wisdom as it's happening. And that process can develop so much that uh, certain troubling truths actually begin to disappear, as I said earlier. And Anicca actually begins to disappear within the stability of samadhi. So that's actually very untroubling. It's like, yeah, I'll just be in samadhi for the rest of my life. I had that when I was in Burma. You very unrealistic. But I was like, "This is so simple; a child could do this." They're like, why would I do anything but this? Why would I get so caught up in a haggard mind? I'm just going to go home and just be with my breath, <laughs> and get a job, and like whatever. And it was like, but basically, I'm just going to breathe the rest of my life. And, <laughs> and it's like, I'll go home and live in Golden Gate Park, and I'll beg food, and breathe, and be the happiest person who's ever lived. And and <clears throat> uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> but at times it feels you know, like it could be that, that easy and that fulfilling to be someone who's very at peace. Your needs have come down to breathing and um, that's a beautiful way to be. Hidden within that, I had lost contact with the aging process, with, um, with Anicca, with the changing process because the samadhi had grown so strong and so that's where intentional vipassana comes in, where you take that same attention and you put it, either you put it in another place where there's a lot more change happening, you start opening up to other experiences of sound and sight and thought, as Philip was describing. You can just relax back and just see like, oh my God, there's so much change. There's a thought, there's a sound, there's a body sensation, and you're sort of opening up right to the great cosmic dance of all this change. So that was the invitation of having more open attention, where Uh, The only thing that's stable is that in every moment you're knowing something, but everything else is in flux. So that's sort of another way to practice anicca from samadhi is change the the view to a very dynamic view, and then there's a lot of anicca available. But you can do it also right in the breath. You can feel the warmth in your hands, and that can be a way you gather yourself, just enjoying body sensations and warmth in your hands. And the same hands you then tilt the question, and you start seeing the heartbeat, you start seeing the tingling, and then all of a sudden, uh, it might take a minute or two, but you start to see, yeah, there's a lot of flux going on there. There's a lot of change. In fact, the same hands I was resting in for security, all there is now is ever-changing experiences. So it doesn't have to be a, a very big change. It's just the changing of question, the changing of investigation, the changing of looking at this truth of anicca. So we have another day to practice that. And uh, you, there's three ways to win and you can't do any but these three. (laughs) One is to continue practicing, to further develop samadhi and the incredible benefits that come from that and develop that as long as you like. That's a, a very rich practice and people do it for decades and get a lot of benefit from it. You can explore what it's like to try to rest in the field of anicca. And then you can try to swing back and forth between the two and see what that's like. See if you can ground yourself in the well-being that comes from samadhi and then relax into a view of experience, experiencing experience, where you really get to feel how much is changing, how much is changing. And if it it doesn't get troubling, then you can stay in that view. You can stay in the view of things arising and passing, arising and passing. But if you get dissipated or confused or it becomes too much, then you guide yourself back into a way that your mind collects into that stable field of well-being. That's really the beautiful high art in this tradition, Theravada, of moving back and forth between samadhi and insight. So let's sit for a moment together. And after a stimulating talk like this, you might begin by reconnecting to your breath, reconnecting to your body, inviting yourself into that more stable, relaxed, calm, And then to the degree you find it interesting, see if you can tune into how fresh and new moment by moment experiences, a new heartbeat, a new breath, a new tingling in your face, a cool breeze coming over your skin, if that ever dissipates your attention so it feels scattered or thin, unreliable, you can just tilt your practice back again and take refuge in the breath. Take refuge in the in and out, the rise and fall, the steady rhythm in the body.